You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Good evening. Very well welcome to this uh, Sunday evening service that we're putting up tonight. It's going to be a service, but not as we really know it. Uh, we're thinking about the whole theme of satisfaction tonight under the question, is this it? Is this all the world has to offer us? And uh, we hope that you will benefit from the little clips that are interspersed with the teaching of God's word and some praise uh, throughout. So thanks for joining us and we hope that God would speak to us very clearly tonight as we ask the question, is this it? Satisfaction 101. Satisfaction is one of those things that everyone is after. We've just heard Mick Jagger, who sang with the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No uh, Satisfaction. As he goes on and later in that song to bemoan TV and radio adverts that promise him so much, everything from driving in his car to having a shirt that's whiter than white, to the fact that the girl that he's in love with basically says, uh, don't call me, I'll call you. Right the way through to the latest 2020 surveys that you can read online about consumer, student or customer satisfaction ratings over everything from university to bank accounts to holiday cruises and internet providers. It's what everything from eBay, TripAdvisor, Airbnb relies upon these days. People who feel satisfied with their purchase for now, anyway. Although when you read some of the reviews in TripAdvisor on the satisfaction rating of certain holidays, you really have to wonder what people were expecting. For example, the woman who wrote in her review, the beach was just far too sandy. Or the family who complained, no one told us there'd be fish in the sea. Our children were startled. Or the more far-flung traveller who commented, it took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica. It only took the Americans three. Whilst others moaned, we had to spend some considerable time queuing outside where there was no air conditioning. And the last I read tickled me most. The brochure says, no hairdressers at the hotel accommodation. Fair enough, you would think. But the complaint continued, we're trainee hairdressers. Would we be okay staying there? A definition of the word satisfaction, I think, might help us at this point. The dictionary defines satisfaction as the fulfilment of one's wishes, expectations or needs, or the pleasure derived from this. There, I hope you're satisfied with that explanation. All bound up, you see, with our dreams of how someone, something or somewhere will match our expectations. Let's face it, we spend so much of our lives longing and looking for something, something that will make us properly happy. I think it's that feeling, that emotion of having been 
Some are great, done something brilliant, achieved something way beyond our wildest dreams, been given a gift of that thing that we always, always wanted, that when we stop, look around and assess it all, we then stop and say, is this it? Is this it? We're constantly looking out for the next thing. That if we manage to wrap our fingers right around it, we think, yeah, that would make me satisfied. It might be a person in the form of a boyfriend or girlfriend or a more loving husband or wife. It might be a child that you long for or a child you've hoped for, a child who behaves, a child who is clever, a child who is fitter, a child who follows the Lord more faithfully, a child who is more loving or caring or committed. Or a friend, someone you can actually trust, someone to confide in, someone to make life less lonely and intimidating. Or it might be a place, a bigger home, a more suitable flat, a more comfortable apartment, the idyllic home, a little palace of your own. Or it might be a thing, a shinier, faster, more efficient car, a more satisfying job, a clearer career path, a stronger body, a pain-free back or neck or leg, a piece of paper that lists your achievements and all your exam grades. Or it might be simply having a stable, clear mind. A huge part of our dissatisfaction problem is down to, to this, our mobile devices, our mobile phones. It seems to us as we look at the pictures and as we scroll, scroll through what confronts us every day that everyone we know out there seems to be having a better time than us. For very few people put up posts showing them when life's a mess or when the dogs peed all over the kitchen floor. Or whenever you wake up in the morning, go out to a flat tire. Never before have we been able to keep up with how other people are doing on the quest for life like we can today. If you are in your 20s or 30s, you're the first full generation whose lives social media has played a huge part in your growing up years, your adolescence. And there's reason to believe it has actually affected the way we think the way our brains develop. In her book, Is This It?, Rachel Jones says this, It's not comparing ourselves with what other people have that makes us dissatisfied. We also compare ourselves with what we think we should have or be. We have been raised to think that we're special and that life owes us shiny unicorns and that we can expect them to turn up almost as soon as we start out and we are adventures into the world. So when work or relationships or our church or life in general doesn't feel like shiny unicorns, when it feels well, normal, we get unhappy. And so we go looking somewhere or for someone else. Rachel Jones, who herself is in her 20s, goes on, our generation is entitled and has become delusional. Now, before we go on, and think about what really satisfies by asking, is this it? There are a couple of things that we need to say. First of all, some people listening or watching this tonight are facing really tough stuff at the moment. In those times, it is not wrong to wish that your circumstances would change and that God would ease your pain. The aim of tonight is not to help us like every circumstance we're in, but to be content in the circumstances we're in. 
And the second thing, dissatisfaction turns the edges of our blue sky grey. There is a sense of lack in any area of our lives that we just can't fill. One man who has been on the satisfaction journey was the Apostle Paul. And in his letter to the Philippian church he wrote, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That's Philippians 4 verses 11 and 12. Paul certainly isn't trying to be smug here. He's wanting to encourage us by first of all stating contentment is not automatic or easy. It has to be learned. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And the second thing is, it is possible to learn. If you want to be content, know that you can be content. You've just got to learn how. But how? Well, have you ever tried looking down the wrong end a pair of binoculars? If so, you will know that instead of making things look bigger and closer, it makes them look smaller and further away. Dissatisfaction starts when we look at the wrong things through the wrong end of the binoculars. We look at our earthly circumstances through the small end and they loom large in our vision. They seem big and right in front of us. But we look at eternal things, the things that will last forever through the big end and they seem small and insignificant and very, very far away. Yet in reality, eternity is none of those things. For eternity is big, it lasts forever, it's important and it's coming soon. Study of plants. Quick with the answer. Botany. Botany. He did it. Right. Yeah. You've got to have the courage of your convictions. How are we doing for cabbages? No cabbages there. One there and two at the end. Have you got a cabbage? Oh, you haven't. None here and two for Padita. All right, then. Next question for you. What is the national anthem of France called? Well, as you're all thinking about the answer to that question, that was from the TV show Cracker Jack from 1979, where these three poor kids are lined up on these small podiums and they get asked questions. If they get the question right, they get handed a game like Monopoly or Cluedo or remote controlled car. If they get the question wrong, they're handed a cabbage. It's all about how much they could hold. The bigger the hands or the breadth of the kid, the more they could hold as they get the questions right. It was all about what they held on to. And as that programme progressed, the three kids began looking at each other, comparing and trying how much she has, how much they have, and how much more they would like to have. Psalm 73 is the Psalm of Asaph. And we're going to read it together just now in the context of our understanding about satisfaction. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. 
From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me by your counsel and afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Amen. This is God's word to us tonight as we think about satisfaction. Here's the first thing we pick up from this psalm to help us in our understanding of satisfaction. Number one, get your perspective right. Get your perspective right. If you've got your Bible open there, Psalm 73 verses 2 and 3, the writer of this psalm, Asaph, looks like he might have spent too much time scrolling on Instagram. He's envying the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked. And he's on a slippery slope. It says here his feet have almost slipped. He spent so much time, a little bit like those kids in that game show on Cracker Jack, looking around at what everyone else has got, forgetting what he himself already has. He is frustrated. Look at verse 1. He has kept his life pure. He's gone out of his way to serve God and do good. But he asked, but for what? You know, what have I got out of it? Now the wicked here, well, they're not really, really bad people, but rather the people who think that either God is not real or he's just not worth listening to. And yet it doesn't seem to be holding these other people back. Asaph just feels there's a sense of injustice. He's kept his heart pure. He's done what is right. And he looks around and the people who've ignored God and haven't been to church for years and have no interest in doing what's right, they seem to be prospering. Look at verse 4. They don't struggle with pimples or spots or six-packs and stretch marks. Verse 5, they seem to be free from all the common burdens of the ordinary people. No more lonely people. No more broken hearts there. No worries over redundancy or granny's dementia or your dad's cancer. Verse 5, they don't seem to be plagued by human ills. It looks like they've got it all. Verse 6, they're the go-getters. Verse 9, taking their way out of, talking their way out of everything they just seem to have an answer for everything they can chat away and excuse themselves verse 10 they're people with influence verse 11 
they're not weighed down by religious baggage. No concerns about having to get up to church on a Sunday morning or getting along to church or helping with the stewarding or being part of the praise team or what will happen with the kids or if the service will be too long or the message too challenging. No rules to follow, no people to please. Verse 12, they're free from care. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Just to be free from all care. Not have to worry about all of this stuff. No barriers or breaks or burdens or hindrances. Nothing to trouble the conscience. It's really interesting. I have a guy that I went to school with. And he would have been a professing Christian at that time in the 90s. One of the first guys I know who ever went on a summer mission team. He went on a team to Bolivia. He was one of those guys who always scraped into classes and bluffed his way into university course with the lowest grades and with a bit of chat and a bit of charm. And my mum always said, that fella, he would land on his feet if you dropped him from whatever height, whilst the rest of you always seemed to have to work for it. Others seemed to notice it as well. He just seemed to sail through life. If you saw him, he just kind of sauntered through life. Nothing seemed to faze him or worry him or bother him. And now he has the most amazing job He's working for the United Nations across the world, visiting sites for conservation, taking photographs, writing a few reports. The pictures he puts up on Instagram and Facebook and online are sickeningly beautiful and so amazing. But it is very clear that he's jettisoned his Christian faith a long time ago. For I read recently what he'd written supporting David Attenborough's claim that this earth is our Garden of Eden. In other words, that this earth is it, this is it, and we must preserve it at all cost. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about our world, but for my mate Phil and for Sir David Attenborough, they see no life beyond this world. This is it. There's nothing more. So enjoy the beauty of it and here, let's enjoy ourselves. And we all know people like this. Great jobs, no problems, no concerns. Therefore, no need to consider God or eternity or judgment or Christ. They have their Eden, their paradise now. Asaph, like me, looking at my mate Phil, asks in verse 13 and 14, Who's better off? My mate Phil with no worries and no God, or me with my concerns and my huge burdens before God? As I look at the world and see that it's broken, and know that people are suffering, and finding things hard. And knowing my own life and my own sin. And the things that I need to iron out. Do you ever find yourself asking these kind of questions? I do. More and more. You know this Christian stuff is meant to make me happy. But it doesn't seem to be working. Lord I'm worn out. I'm run down. I seem to be let down and under pressure. Lord why don't I have it like they have it? Am I wasting my time with Jesus? No. No, 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 says Asaph. Let's read verses 16 to 18 together, where we read there, When I had tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. You see, Asaph comes before God with his binoculars turned the right way around, with the small end, to his eyes and there he sees as the bible has always laid out that one day the wicked will be cast down those who have ignored god in this life 
God will ignore and send away in the next. They'll be cast down, swept away. And this day of reckoning is not far off. It is closer than we think. It is coming soon. Verse 19 says, Suddenly, suddenly, when I envy those who are not Christians, I am being terribly short-sighted. They might have everything. They might even own the world or travel the world. But God says they have nothing beyond this world. They possess nothing, nothing of eternal worth. And once this has been seen, once the binoculars are held up in the right way and seen with fresh eyes, verses 23 to 26, we hear God speak. God says, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Leading Asaph, they, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. The wicked, you see, are one day going to lose all their stuff and all their status pretty soon. But Asaph is something that is promised from God and will last forever. A relationship with God that goes on from now, verse 24, into glory. God holds Asaph's hand with the undivided attention and intimacy and security of a loving parent to a loving young child. And more than anything else, God satisfies. He is Asaph's portion. Read verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. When I think portion, I think food. I think a decent dollop of whatever is going. It's there on the plate and, and it's mine. Our God says, I am your portion. A wholesome, hearty me given to you to fill you up rather than all the sugary snacks of this world that will just fill a gap for a while and end up just making your teeth feel fuzzy. Asaph's realities are that everything the earth has to offer compares nothing to the glory of heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's the question. I think we need to write over this question of satisfaction as we start this over these weeks. Whom have I in heaven but you? And that's the question we need to keep asking ourselves too. Why chase those things? that are glittering brightly at the moment, but don't last. Why do we chase them? And won't ultimately satisfy when you have something or someone else who will. Would you really trade? Let's think about this. Let's get right down to brass tank. Would you really trade your salvation for a skinnier figure and two weeks in St. Lucia? Because that's the kind of question it all boils down to. I admire Asaph's honesty. He shows us when we are feeling dissatisfied. We can be honest about that with God. Bring that dissatisfaction to God. We can tell him what we're longing for. And why we're tempted to think that life is unfair. But like Asaph, Christian friend, don't stop there. Bring it to God and work it out before him. We need to keep coming back to God. Verses 21 and 22 and acknowledge it. When my heart is grieved. When my spirit is embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. You see, here's the cut. Living under the cloud of dissatisfaction isn't miserable. It's sinful. 
it makes a mockery of what God has given us already, our relationship with the Most High God. He is a good Father who gives us good things. Dissatisfaction turns us into brute beasts. And sorry to say this, and hard and all as it might sound to our farming friends amongst us, cows in the field don't enjoy a relationship with God. They're just animals. You might see pound signs, but they're just animals. And when our minds are controlled by our desires, that's what we become like, the animal in the field. And maybe right now some of us need to turn those binoculars around to get things into perspective and stop acting like the cows in the field thinking the grass is always greener on the other side. And start living, not like beasts, but like sons of God. And so our second and last thing that we want to think about tonight with regard to satisfaction is we need to know what we're looking at. Having gained perspective, we need to know what we're looking at. As any twitcher, birdwatcher, ornithologist, naturalist will tell you, you've got to know what you're looking for. Otherwise, you might go chasing across the world in search of something, only to mistake a rare bird for a common sparrow or a huge grey rock for a great white shark. So how do we know what to look for? And how do we know where to find it? How do we find what only truly satisfies? Remember I said earlier that Paul had learned the secret of contentment. How did he do it? Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 tells us, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We, have a one, we had a handful of, of sermons on, on cassette tape at home whenever I was growing up. And there was one that I would listen to time and time again. Number one, because I was getting to grips even as a young fellow with a bit of technology. And cassette tapes were cutting edge in those days. And I would slot it in. And the fact it just said on the cassette tape, Philippians 1 verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And underneath it said, Howell Jones. Kyle Jones was a wonderful Welsh preacher and there was something about his Welsh accent as he preached in this wonderful verse that kept drawing me back to listening. His voice and the words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I can remember it still, the, the words ringing in my ears, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This is one of those wow moments in the Bible. Do we really believe it? Are our lives given to Christ? Do we really believe that death for the Christian is gain? For if we really do believe it, that verse is life-changing and death-defying. Paul is basically saying, I am satisfied because live or die, I have what satisfies, or rather, I have him who satisfies. Paul, living or dying, for him it was a win-win equation. Paul is saying that if you're living for Christ in this life, if he is your all, even when you die, you will not lose out. So what if you don't visit New York or Barbados or do that cruise or renovate that house or marry that girl or get promotion in that job? Eternity with Christ is better. 
And in this moment, we need to hear that for some of us are fed up and feeling restricted and let down and put out and have started even to blame God in our hearts. If we are in Christ, we are missing out on nothing. We already have what we need. And even if we die, it will be gain. Oh, I wish I shared this absolute, utter confidence. But the truth is, I don't. And my discontent comes when I lose sight of either the living for Christ or the dying is gain. Contentment is fine in living a life that can be summed up in one word, Christ. Jesus is not like some rare bird that we're trying to spy through our binoculars or the species that's playing hard to get. This Jesus is not beyond our reach. He's not hiding around the corner. He's not wanting us to pull our socks up and try a little harder. We already have him and he's wonderful. This Jesus who is all compassion, who sees the widow whose son is being carried in the hearse and he does not walk by but he stops and he helps. The Jesus who is humble, who plays the servant and washes the feet of the disciples, the disciples who were just about to betray him and abandon him and he wraps the towel around his waist, gets on his hands and knees and takes that mud and that dung splattered feet and he washes them clean. The Jesus who is quick-witted, who answers the awkward questions of his enemies that are thrown at him, who speaks truth and leaves his opponents floundering. The Jesus who is gentle, he's got all the time in the world for widows and children and begs them to come and rebukes those who send the little ones away. The Jesus who is just, who points us, points out cheats and overturns tables and chases robbers out of the temple. The Jesus who sees people as they are, a blind beggar on the roadside who's being shushed by everyone else. But Jesus sees the man, not the problem. He doesn't toss him a few coins and say, I hope you'll be all right. He stops and he asks, he listens and he heals. This Jesus is all love. He went all the way. He gives all that he had. Allowed those beautiful hands, hands that raised the dead, hands that turned over the tables, hands that hugged children, hands that washed mud splattered feet, hands that touched blind eyes, hands that were torn apart by nails. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. His hands were scarred so that yours, your hands and mine, can grasp him more tightly rather than push him aside and point blame at him and accuse him of not caring for us. All so that we can shake hands and enjoy his embrace in heaven. He loved us to the end, to the bitter end, to the cross. Friends, this is who we live for. To live is Christ. And if we live for this beautiful saviour, if we give all of our time and all of our eyes and all of our hearts to him, to die will be such gain because we will be with a dear friend, a loving saviour. You know, it's a little bit like how we choose to listen to our music. You know, you can adjust the volume, can't you? Either by a tap or by a twiddle of the knob. You can adjust the treble or the bass. Even in our cars, you can have it concentrate on the driver's side or the passenger side, to the front or the back. And we get to choose, we get to choose, do we play music 
for ourselves? The music of God's amazing grace? Do we turn it up loud and full? A heavy bass layer to our lives that helps us hear Christ for who he is and all his brilliance? Or do we choose to hit the mute button with the X through it and say, I can't be bothered listening to all that. The love song of Calvary. Let's forget about it for a while. And then we get frustrated and fraught and fidgety and angry. Or do we turn it down low as we fill our eyes with the adverts and gaze longingly at everything else our friends have and we want what's on that screen? Friends, we get to choose what we listen to. Let me encourage you, pump it up. Pump up the volume of God's mercy. Let that be the reverberating bass sound and the soundtrack to our decisions in life with money and relationships and jobs and decisions so that we might say, for me to live is Christ. Often we try to solve our dissatisfaction by looking at what we don't have and then try and get it. If you're unhappily single, you try online Christian dating. You're bored at work, let's look for a new job. You don't like the way you look, there's a beauty treatment or a protein supplement for that. Your mobile phone's a bit frustrated. Oh, we'll just go and buy a new one. But there's a better gain. There is a better gain on the other side of the grave. My dissatisfaction is worse when I am not confident that to die is gain. It's why I hedge my bets and aim to enjoy as much as I can now, packing in all those experiences and milestones and accolades to try and gain, 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 gain. Get, get, get. Fill, fill, fill while we can. But Paul says, with Christ it is impossible to miss out. In Christ we are locked into a guaranteed win-win situation that will lead us to the most exhilarating and unending experience possible. But do we believe it? That to live is Christ and to die is gain. Rachel Jones in her book, Is This It? says this, and with this I finish. Ironically, the way you get Jesus is by loosening your grip on the other stuff, by letting it go rather than desperately trying to gather it all together. So what are you reaching for? What are you holding space for? What are you hoping to have one day? What do you polish that's on the mantelpiece? Let it go. Look at Jesus and keep looking because he can satisfy today, tomorrow and forever. What do you need to let go? Thank you.